thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio with something, well, I say slightly different. We've done these before, um, but, you know, it's, it's a special one um, because we are going to be discussing toxic masculinity and gender violence through the lens of Bond. It's a brand new teaching unit from Tooled Up Education, and we're going to be talking this morning to some of the contributors to that unit, which is really, really exciting. Uh, you might be watching this live uh, on Twitter or YouTube or LinkedIn. You might be watching it back on one of those channels, or you could even be listening to this as a podcast um, later on today. So it could be any of those. So if that is you, welcome and thank you very much for joining us and checking in on this. Now, just as a short introduction, we know that toxic masculinity and the role of particular influencers in the world of social media has been all over the news this week and last week and the week before last. Um, we think about the case of Andrew Tate, for example, um, his arrest, his influence as one of the most Googled men on the planet the subject of, of worldwide discussion, particularly in schools and amongst parents and, well, amongst kids as well. Um, so this morning, we're, we're going to discuss how often the onus falls on schools and on teachers, on, on PSHE teachers to tackle topics like sexism or misogyny or gender-based violence, and that can be really tough. Um, and the people that you can see on screen or that I'm going to introduce in a moment, if you're listening to this as a podcast, have worked on a unit of work that schools can use um, to address some of these issues or try to address some of these issues. They're massive issues. Um, and we've got Ian, uh, who is an academic at Roehampton University. Uh, and we also have Dr. Ellie Hansen, who is a clinical psychologist uh, who's looking at helping educators uh, look at these issues more deeply. Um, and in fact, I'm going to get your title absolutely right, Ellie. You're an independent clinical psychologist preventing sexual harassment and abuse uh, in schools and how schools can respond effectively to issues relating to that. And you also work in PSHE, uh, in the P with the PSHE Association as well. Um, so amazing guests um, to sort of discuss this topic with. Um, Ian, I might just let you introduce yourself a little bit more um, than what I've done there and maybe tell people a little bit about yourself and how you ended up working on this unit with Tooled Up Education, which is looking at toxic masculinity and gender-based violence through the lens of Bond. Thanks, Tom. Yeah. So as Tom said, my name's Ian Kinane. I work at the University of Roehampton in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences. And there I'm the general editor of the International Journal of James Bond Studies, which people always sort of balk at me when, when I say, but it is in fact an actual thing. It's, it's an academic peer-reviewed journal um, dedicated to all aspects of the James Bond franchise, research into all aspects of the James Bond franchise. And that's something I, I run out of the university there. 
I first got involved uh, with Tools of Education and with Cathy when she contacted me about another strand of Bond research. And she told me a little bit about Ellie's work and sort of pitched this idea to me that actually it would be really good if we could kind of come together as a, as a sort of a, a triumvirate, so to speak, me with my sort of literary critical analysis hat on, Ellie with the kind of clinical psychology hat on, and then Cathy herself with a kind of criminolog criminologist educationalist hat on. And we sort of got together and sort of started talking uh, broadly about how we might tackle these issues and, and whether or not the kind of popular cultural icon of James Bond might be an appropriate lens or avenue through which we can do that. So a couple of years ago, we organised a sort of almost a kind of a summer school workshop between the three of us where we hashed out a lot of the ideas, which, which basically amounted to us sharing, in essence, our own kind of uh, three various approaches to these ideas and seeing if we could synthesize, um, see if we could synthesize ideas in a way that would be beneficial, advantageous to teachers who, as you said, Tom, in your intro, who, who often are, are landed with the burden of having to kind of carry these lessons. So really taking taking my kind of own interest in, in Bond studies and James Bond studies and with the kind of the mandate from the university to do more impact and outreach work, to get involved with our, our, our kind of local and national and sometimes international communities, this uh, really was a no-brainer in a sense. Um, you know, being asked to kind of bring to bear my, my kind of my research and uh, my kind of knowledge on the Bond franchise. Um, it really is a, a kind of a, a joy in that sense and, and getting to work with both Ellie and Cathy in a sense and, and learning from them as well how, how, how they would view certain things um, um, in the Bond franchise, perhaps that I've, I've kind of looked at for many years at this point. So it's, it's been this real kind of meeting of the minds when it comes to synthesizing interdisciplinary approaches. Yeah, I mean, we're going to sort of dig into um, the, the unit itself. Um, I don't know whether you, you probably do know this, um, Ian, but how many how many lessons are in the unit? How How is it structured as a unit of work? Because obviously you've said, you know, you had this initial discussion, you wanted to design this unit, you come up with the idea and mm -hmm. whatever. So how is it actually structured? Absolutely. So at the moment, we're looking at about five to six individual uh, lesson lesson plans. Um, each of which is around 50 minutes to an hour. And, and we're looking to put together a kind of a, a pack with digital resources as well to help students and teachers. And we've broadly divided these units in, into kind of different themes. So we take a different thematic approach. The first we're, we're kind of starting with is the idea of, of what is a real man. There's a moment in um, Casino Royale, the 2006 Bond film, where uh, Eva Green's character, Vesper Lind, says to Daniel Craig's Bond, you're more of a real man than anyone else I've ever met. And so we really wanted to start with this idea of what actually is that? What does it mean to be a, a real man? What, what is a man in this sense? Um, and from there, we're moving on to this notion of, uh, uh, in, the second, in the second lesson, of, of what vulnerability and courage is, how we can, I suppose, reconstitute those ideas, bond, uh, as people can kind of probably gather, is not a particularly emotive character. There's a scene at the end of On Her Majesty's Secret Service in 1969, for instance, where George Lazenby, in the initial takes for that scene, um, starts to cry. And the director, Peter Hunt, tells him, no, Bond doesn't cry at any point. So we're trying to kind of get to the heart of, of what, what actually, how we marry up vulnerability and courage with, with, with this notion of, of, of what a real man actually is. Then we're going to go into, in, in the third lesson, a little bit more, uh, we, we've, so we've called it bond in bed. And we're interested in, this, interested in this idea of kind of bond 
as uh, as a lover, the idea of uh, men like Bond as uh, particular um, lovers. Um, there's the old adage that all men want to be Bond and all women want to sleep with Bond. And of course, you know, we will challenge that notion. And what we, we, we tend to do is to look at scenes both from the novels and from the, the films themselves and to talk about the different ways in which um, Bond's uh, sexual identity or indeed his, his kind of prowess as, as a quote unquote real man it, it is really called into question through some of the kind of nefarious and, and oftentimes rapacious um, aspects of his character. So we'll be looking at um, the principles of, of healthy sexual experiences and the core values of, of, of a kind of a, a mutually satisfying um, happy, healthy sexual experience, often contrasting with, with, with what we see in the Bond uh, films themselves. Then we're, we're going to look briefly at the notion of, of kind of Bond as a bystander or the different men in Bond's life as, as a kind of a bystanders. His, his good friend Felix Leiter appears in a number of the novels and, and the films. And so we're looking at the degree to which um, to which men play an active part in anti-sexism, and, and I say active um, quite purposefully, it's, it's, it's not a passive role. We're looking at the degree to which sexism and gender dynamics kind of perpetuate based on the lack of action or activity from uh, men who, who, who see uh, other men behaving in certain, uh, let's say, less than pleasant uh, or salubrious ways. And then finally, we end up talking about gender straight jackets and stereotypes and the idea of, of how both toxic, toxic masculinity and toxic femininity in a sense um, are harmful to everyone. So taking this kind of taking the sort of students, the teachers on a trajectory right from this notion of, of what it means to be a, a man in the contemporary culture, you mentioned Andrew Tate a moment ago, right up to the ways in which straight jacket gender roles really confine and restrict us. Harry, I want to ask you, because we've talked there a little bit about the unit itself, what's contained in it. Can you give us maybe a little bit more detail, first of all, on, on your role within the unit, but also what's the problem that you're trying to solve here? And is there a is there a a particular reason that you decided to develop this now? You know, what, what's kind of going on now that's triggered this and and um you know why is it needed yes absolutely i mean i think probably all our all of our listeners or, or viewers um won't dispute the the fact that schools have an issue with sexual harassment and abuse right now um which is a, a much wider cultural issue than just within schools but obviously um schools are where a lot of it is playing out between young people um you know i think it's fair to say that there's an epidemic of it in fact um, which has been fueled by various cultural forces um, pornography is playing a part in that um, but but also interlinking with that kind of notions as, as Ian's just described there of what it means to be a boy or a man and also what it means to be a girl or a woman um, so what we're trying to do really i've got kind of two hands with this module one is that we want to it, it to be a tool that schools have in in a wider toolkit um, of things that they can do to help prevent sexual harassment and abuse um within peer groups um and also with, with my other hand we, we, we're wanting to do something not just to to prevent a negative but to develop a positive we would like to support 
children and young people in developing healthy and positive, satisfying relationships and sexual experiences. So, so this is about promoting kind of mental health, well-being and good relationships, um, as well as preventing those harms. Ellie, I mean, what do you see as the main issues that young people are navigating around sex and relationships currently? And, and what, what are the sort of things that you have observed or seen that you think they're commonly negotiating? Um, I think that there's a lot of confusion about sex. Um, I think there's also, you know, it, I mean, some of these problems are have maybe grown recently, but others are, you know, as old as the hills. Um, I, you know, at the end of the day, adolescence is a time of some le level of confusion anyway and, and vulnerability and kind of working out who you are um, and sex and relationships being a kind of new territory for, for them. Um, but that is made more complicated and difficult by a lot of the stuff online, um, both social media and pornography. Um, and so what you've got is you've got certain what I call sexual scripts being promoted. What I mean by that is what is kind of said to be normal, acceptable um, and sexy in sexual situations. Uh, pornography has got a certain certain set of messages around that, you know, that, that for example, um, dominance is sexy and equality or, or personal connection isn't. Um, and, and so many young people are coming across these messages and that is shaping um, or adding confusion to how they navigate sex and relationships. Um, and so what we're wanting to do is to counteract some of that with, well, hang on a minute, what actually makes sexual relationships, sexual experiences and relationships um, satisfying and ethical and, and, and good for everybody. Um, one of the things, because about two weeks ago, um, Teachers Talk Radio did a show around sort of tackling Tate and we, we talked about, we had um, a criminologist on, we had various other people on. And, um, you know, this is a question to both of you. I mean, feel free either of you to jump in on this. But one of the questions that we asked during that show was, what is toxic masculinity? And to sort of recognize, I guess one of the things we did in that show is we recognized the influence of people like Andrew Tate. There are, there are many people like Andrew Tate. He's just one person. But, you know, that sort of thing appeal, whether we like it or not, it appeals to a large, a large subsection of people, young men in particular. And we were sort of recognizing that not all those young men can be, can be, I don't know how to say, but we, we were sort of recognising they weren't bad boys. They, they weren't bad men, but there was something in the messaging that was appealing to them. And I wonder, and both of you can have a go at this, I wonder, number one, how, how do you think this unit, you know, helps with that? And number two, do you think that, some of these boys, they've almost taken that feeling underground a little bit. That's what Andrew Tate would say. He'd say, well, you know, these boys can't express how being a man anymore. You know, or that's the sort of thing he'd come out with, isn't it? So how, how do you sort of square that circle? What do you think of that? I mean, do, do, do you think that 
um, is this a different approach? What? How do we approach that? Ellie, can I just jump in um, first to sort of respond to Tom? I, I guess when we're talking about that kind of definitions of toxic masculinity, I think, Tom, you've, you've drawn attention to something important that it's not necessarily the case that these are, quote unquote, wholly bad boys through and through. But I think what we're, what we're seeing with the kind of uh, epidemic of, of, of so-called uh, what we know as toxic masculinity, it, it's yeah. really about a kind of de facto normalized vision of masculinity that seemed to appeal to a kind of almost throwback um, vision of a kind of 1950s masculinity, which is why I think that, bond. which is why a bond lens is a really good lens to look at through this, because we have someone like Fleming who's writing in the 50s, who, who, whose prose style very much matches the kind of pithy, misogynistic sexism of his character. A lot of young people will, will you know, will be shown extracts from Fleming as part of this module and will probably rightly so balk at the degree of, you know of distance between how he is writing in, in, in the 50s and how they are kind of conceiving or thinking of masculinity today but but to kind of extend this idea a bit more I think yes while they're not all bad men or bad boys and, and again that's that's something we're very conscious of talking about here this idea of you know hashtag not all men which which is a problematic one in itself you can be a quote-unquote good guy or a nice guy which is again itself a problematic term you can be that and still be subject to the same kinds of ideological patterning the normalization of certain facets that i think lead to toxic masculinity so so for instance what, what we're looking to address really the kind of the, the, the linchpin of, of, of this module really is focusing on a couple of, of kind of interrelated themes First of all, the lack of empathy, the lack of empathy in how we deal with one another, particularly in a sexual or romantic context, leads to objectification. It leads to a kind of certain dehumanization, which allows stereotypically men to treat women as objects or boys to treat girls as objects. Linked to that, emotional literacy, the degree to which, as, as Ali mentioned a moment ago, we have so a proliferation of, of, of images, texts, um, TV shows, films, music, whatever, um, that sort of promotes a kind of hyper-aggressive um, raunchiness, a kind of dominance as sexy, as, as Ali said. And, and nowhere does it seem to cater for or allow for the fact that actually emotional intelligence, emotional connection, emotional intimacy, and indeed emotional literacy is really important. How are you able to read your partner? And, and hence we we, we see a kind of conundrum emerging of late, particularly around rape culture, the idea of, of, of women um, making accusations against men, men denying those accusations. Perhaps both parties believe, in fact, that, that they're absolutely right. But I think that the crux of the issue is the lack of emotional literacy, perhaps on the part of young men, on men, in being unable to recognise certain signs or unable to recognise certain emotional cues in their partners, um, leads to this confusion. And of course, then sort of to conclude, this is about broadly building a kind of a digital literacy, an awareness of the kind of textual cultural environment around young people that creates or promotes a vision of a kind of hyper aggressive and, and often you know, hyper masculinist vision of, of kind of conquest and domination. So we're really trying to challenge conventional thinking around 
what might constitute toxic masculinity. And we think this, this, this appeal to empathy, this appeal to emotional literacy, this appeal to awareness, making sure that young people realise that sex in itself, the actual act of sexual intercourse, is not the be-all and end-all of that romantic exchange. It's what happens afterwards. It's the satisfaction and the emotional comfort that you, you experience afterwards to ensure that you leave that sexual experience with your, your, your partner or however many partners you have and that you are content, that you are safe and that your well-being is preserved. Ali, can you expand a little bit on the traits and the things that you think, because a lot of, a lot of boys might explore a unit like this, they'll go through it, and at the end they've sort of stripped away many of the elements maybe that they were either thinking were okay, maybe they were demonstrating themselves, maybe they viewed them in the media and thought, oh, this is okay. So maybe at the end of the unit, they might be going, well, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore. And maybe some of them will go, well, what am I left with? So what what is, uh, the, the, sorry, these, these are questions that are just coming into my mind now. So don't feel free to pass, you know, like mastermind style and we'll go through the right answers. Oh, no, there's nothing um, I want to pass on. There's, there's a lot here. Yeah. And, and I, think I was just going to say at the end of the unit, you know, if, if, a, if a boy, for example, we're, we're picking on boys, but I mean, I guess girls as well may have some of these views of, 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 of men or whatever. But let's say boy, a boy has gone through the unit and they've stripped away, as I say, many, they, they, they've sort of, your objective from the unit has been fulfilled in the sense they've recognised, okay, these behaviours are not okay. But then at the end, it's like, well, what is my masculinity? What's left at the end? Well, absolutely, absolutely. So, so it's a great question because actually we are not, um, our, our outcomes are not that we strip away from young people, but actually that we um, enrich young people and give them more options. So what I would argue is that um, toxic masculinity and toxic femininity scripts are very, very restrictive. They are a set of invitations to young people um, and coming back to this point that you made earlier around you know the boys acting in this way are not altogether bad boys I, I could not agree more that actually you know all of us when we go through adolescence and indeed the whole entirety of life there's a vulnerability there, there's a kind of working out of my identity and, and often that's confusing and difficult and what these scripts offer is a kind of confident simplistic um, way through you know you can just follow this way of being a man and it's all going to be okay so you don't show emotions you're focused on sexual conquest um, you're hard you're cool you, you denigrate women and, and that's it's an invitation to 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 go through life like that but what we're arguing and what we're really showing through these lessons is that that is actually if you if you adopt that invitation if you say yes to that then you're signing up to a set of deficits. You are then not able to um, easily express your feelings. That I mean, you might be able to express anger or hostility, but are you able to express love or sorrow or grief? Um, are you able to show empathy towards those around you and to be kind? Because these are things that all of us, nearly all of us, and there's research on this, most human beings have a set of core values that are very pro-social and caring. Uh, but the problem with those scripts is that they 
basically prevent boys and like I said, girls as well, acting in line with those scripts. So really at the end of this module, rather than thinking, well, who am I now? We want young people to end up with, actually I can do all of those things and you know, I can express emotion, I can be kind, I can stand up for other people. And that is part of being a boy or a man or a girl or a woman. Perfect. I mean, Ian, I don't know whether you want to sort of add anything to that um, there. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you know, Ellie's hit on, on, on sort of core elements there. One of the things that we're, we're kind of really focused on, I suppose, and I, I like Ellie's kind of way of putting it, it's it's not a deficit model. It's it's an addition model. It, it, it's It's one of the kind of key starting places for us was around this idea of, of, of male anger, particularly when it comes to, to rejection and vulnerability. And we look at James Bond, if you look at the kind of the, the, that first story, Casino Royale, arguably all of, of who Bond becomes, that kind of blunt, uh, operational, utilitarian, uh, invulnerable kind of emotional fellow or emotionless fellow, it's because he was rejected by a, a woman Vesper Lind in the very first novel. That's essentially the kind of primal psychological uh, formative moment for that character bond. He was rejected by a woman who betrayed him. And we see this, this anger all the time, uh, the, the fear that certain women and perhaps certain some men as well feel if, if they reject or, or say no to, to a man or a boy. So one of the things we're trying to kind of get at here with this notion of, of kind of linking vulnerability and courage is that risk of opening up and sort of saying, okay, well, if one, if if you want to shoot your shot, so to speak, to use a colloquial, and, and you are sort of rejected or someone says no, which is their right to do, that you have the resilience and the coping skills to deal with that. And that that isn't a knock to you as a, as a man or a boy. It's not a knock to your masculinity. And that actually what, what we're doing here is trying to, to illustrate the benefits of opening up versus the dangers of, of not opening up. We're trying to imbue young people and, and to, to help teachers imbue their, their young students with the tools to help them reflect on and develop their own coping skills. Because rejection is a part of life, be it professional, be it personal, be it romantic. It is just a part of life. And, and one of the things that I think is, is often overlooked, um, particularly around the kind of discourse of toxic masculinity, uh, is that anyone who is propositioned romantically, sexually, has the right to say no. And no is a full and complete sentence in that context. And often, you know, colloquially with the women in my life that I've spoken to, you know, sisters, partners, those kinds of things, you hear the, 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 the levels of excuse they need to make up. Oh, sorry, I can't, I can't go out with you because I'm with someone else. Or, oh, my boyfriend, you know, there's a kind of almost a, a need to invent a male protective figure. And this idea that, that women are objects of barter uh, objects of exchange between men is is really at the heart of I think uh, kind of certain uh, facets of toxic masculinity and it's what we want to, to sort of disentangle that young women young girls have the right to say no and that that should be entirely and wholly respected and, and no is a full sentence and that young men can accept that and can deal with that and move on without it being a knock to their masculine identity. Yeah, I mean, Ali, just from a sort of um, psychological perspective, what advice would you give to a teacher who might be teaching this unit and, and perhaps one of the questions in there might uh, might be, well, no, that's easy for you to say, but like I've been rejected like 10 times because I got spots and it's like I can't deal with it. Like, 
what's your advice then to that boy? Because in their head, they might, I don't know, they might listen and go, yeah, I actually agree with that. But then equally, they might be like, I can't help the way I feel. And, it, you know, some of these things are thorny questions, aren't they? And, um, you know, there's a certain, I guess my core advice there, um, which, which fits with what we are teaching in the module um, around healthy sexual experiences and, and romantic relationships, we're, we're conveying some core principles um, around kind of attunement. So being able to listen to your own feelings and those of others um, and communication. Um, and actually, you know, if if we've got a boy who is being consistently rejected, you know, that, that, that's not going to be easy. And, and girls are going to be going through similar situations as well. Um, so I think coming back to Ian's point about resilience, um, we want, you know, in a way, there's something about, firstly, um, them having a kind of core self-esteem that can weather that. So even if that girl doesn't want to go out with me, I'm okay, um, and and I can move on, and and there'll be somebody you know somebody else that I can connect with. But I'm also just okay in being who I am. Um, and secondly, there's something about you know um, romance and sexual experiences, a, a safe place for them to to grow and to develop is through friendships. And I don't think we talk about that enough. Um, but actually, again, the research shows that most people um, have got together with their partner through friendship. They were already friends first. So there might be something with this hypothetical boy who's been rejected 10 times where there might be a bit of a scattergun approach that he's taking, uh, just asking out lots of girls. Mm -hmm. But a girl is much more likely to be interested in him if they're already friends. Uh, and, and, you know, it's so interesting because pornography pushes certain scripts as well at Tate and, and a lot of them uh, about what's sexy and what girls want. Um, actually, the majority of us, men and women, girls and boys, we're, we're, it's about friendship and connection and, and attraction grows in those contexts. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I agree with all that. I think that, um, you know, interestingly enough, I mean, one of the things I was going to say is I went to school 1996 to uh 2003 um and obviously in that period you know i would say i went to it was it was a, a state school you know it wasn't a private school or anything i went i went to a state school but it was a probably on the more traditional side of, of state school so for me like there was none and no discussion around sort of um how to talk to women so i, I think um you know, it wasn't even until I got to university, really, that I, well, maybe sixth form, but certainly probably university that I had any sort of concept of, of sort of like how to go about anything like that. So do you think that, you know, I mean, I, I think, well, I'd like to think that things have changed now since 1996 to, to sort of 2000, but maybe it hasn't. You know, I don't know. I'm asking you. I mean, presumably because you've developed this unit, you're saying that actually some of these issues still exist. They're still as prevalent as they were in the 90s, in the 80s. You know, it's the same things. I don't know is the answer. Well, the only thing I know, I guess, is that relationships and sex education have a more prominent place within school life and talking about things has become more commonplace. 
It has, yes. And I think it's both and here that, that sex and relationships education has developed since that time. It's now compulsory in schools. So that's a real positive step forward. Um, we're starting to fill that vacuum that has existed for young people. You know, young people have been consistently saying over the years, we want to have better sex and relationships education. Mm. We want to know from the adults in our life what good looks like. What, what is a healthy sexual relationship? Um, and, and yeah, this module is part of... this of, unit will, will, will hopefully help with that by the end. Yeah. And there's, you know, there's a wide, you know, we're obviously not the only people to have developed something that there's a there's a set of resources out there. We want teachers to have a choice so that they can choose the different modules to fit with their particular school. Um, but yeah, I think going back to your point about how things were in the 90s, uh, some things... I, mean, I love the 90s, by the way. I'm a massive 90s fan, so I'm not like slagging off the 90s. I'm just saying that that element of them was oh, yeah. not good. No, and, and I could not agree with you more. I, and I think things have changed both for the good and for the ill. Yeah. Where we are yeah. now, you know, we've yeah. got better sex and relationships education, but on the other hand, it's needed more than ever before because you have got counteracting forces online and in other parts of society. I think you could argue it's become much more complex now. Than, I mean, that's probably one of the things it's like, oh, everything just seems so simple back then, you know, like, I mean, but then that comes with good and bad, doesn't it? Um, like, I don't, Ian, I don't know whether you have a view on the 90s, because I was going to ask you, you know, um, sort of, well, number one, I was going to ask you what your favourite bits of the module are, but before we get on to that, you know, there will be those people who love Bond. There will be those people who associate Bond with their childhood. There will yeah. be those people who associate Bond with a staple of their sort of diet of, of media or consumption of media. So how, how do you sort of square the circle with those people? Absolutely. I mean, look, I, I was a kid of the 90s as well. And I love the 90s, too. I think there's, you know, we're, we're always at risk of looking back and, and sort of romanticising a past and sort of saying. Yeah, it absolutely. Was so I, it was it? probably terrible. I mean, I, I wasn't <laughs> happy in the 90s, but as a person. But I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm more talking about, you know, I guess you just sort of like things just seem more simple. But then that might be because of the age that. How was that in the 90s? I think as well, a part of it is the development of critical faculties. And I think one of the reasons why things might seem more simple is yeah, because yeah. ignorance is bliss to a certain degree. So when I started watching the Bond films, I did so with my dad, with yeah. my granny. It was a kind of Christmas day, Saturday mm -hmm. afternoon activity, something that was a family activity, actually. And it was it was something spectacular. It was enjoyable. Yeah. And it's only when I kind of grew up a bit more and started thinking about well, how do I reconcile my, my my kind of childhood love, my continued love for this for these films with an awful lot of the ideas around kind of gender, sexuality, race, misogyny, as I'm trying to place these kind of things in myself as well. You know, how, how, how do I as, as a subject um, reconcile who I think I am with the values that I think these these particular texts um, perpetuate? And again, it is the, it is this notion of, of ignorance is bliss. One can enjoy something without having the critical faculties to pick it apart. But equally, I would argue, one can still enjoy something with those critical faculties. Learning and, and critiquing and talking in a yeah. kind of literary, cultural, cinematic, you know, study sense doesn't take away from 
one's enjoyment. I would argue, actually, that it enables one to enjoy something more. Is it difficult to switch off the critical uh, faculties when watching something like Bond? Well, yes, now I would say, of course it is. I can't watch a Bond film without kind of constantly scribbling notes in my head thinking, what about that? But it is still, I guess what I'm trying to say is one can still love a kind of as you put it tom a kind of this icon of, of of our of our shared cultural consciousness we can still love this but hold a recognition of the fact of of what's of what's actually going on and i i defer to kind of phoebe waller bridge on this who, who who in part wrote some of the script for for the most recent bomb film no time to die mm. she was asked this very this this very question she's only the second woman uh to, to have been involved in, in the screenwriting of, of a bond film after johanna harwood in, in 1963's from russia with love and she said bond himself can be all of the things that we i guess in some ways love about him he can be slightly backwards he can be slightly retrograde he can be slightly misogynistic but the films themselves don't have to endorse that position and i think that's one of the interesting tensions that the most recent films have tried to get around how we preserve what's clearly a a well-loved character in an environment that has shifted the landscape has shifted since you know me too and an awful lot of these kind of um kind of gender movements Bonds doesn't have a kind of unproblematic or unquestioned place in our landscape nowadays. I mean, do you think obviously the the sort of context around Bond was was you mentioned Ian Fleming and, and the mm. fact that he sort of come through the Second World War and I guess mm. you know like at the time you mentioned this, but at the time of his writing, I guess that you know it was a, it was a wildly different world to the one that we have now, and you know, and that could probably apply to a. a hundred other sort of things but certainly i mean what were the bits from the module that you hope will have the biggest impact what are the bits from the module that you sort of look at and think you know what regardless of whether someone's a fan of bond or not these are the bits that i think can really really do something absolutely so there's a couple of activities we developed uh the first of which is um Maybe your listeners, your viewers might be familiar with Alison Bechdel, phenomenal graphic artist and um, artist in general. But she she devised a kind of a a so-called Bechdel test. And again, people might be colloquially quite familiar with this. The Bechdel test is is this this, this simple test for for different media, texts, films, whatever. And the test is simply this. Does whatever text we're looking at have a conversation between two female identifying characters and for that conversation not to be about a man. And if the answer to that question is no, then that text does not pass the Bechdel test. And you'd be surprised at how many texts in our kind of cultural landscape do not pass this text. I can think of only Buffy the Vampire Slayer (laughs) as one text that comes to mind that absolutely does pass this test. And so what we we want the young people of this kind of module of this of these units to do is is to come up with their own equivalent of a Bechdel test Mm. around this idea of what does good sex look like? What is the quote unquote optimum outcome? So if sex is not the end, but part of the journey and this kind of, you know, reconfiguration of intimacy, what kind of ideas do these young people seek when they're looking for good sexual intercourse or good sexual practices? And so giving them the tools to recognize, actually, hang on, according to this equivalent of the Bechdel test, according to this test, this doesn't meet my expectations. And so what we do is, what I'm excited about sharing is is different film clips from uh, the different films and, and, and showing them, you know, everything from 
Sean Connery's Bond in, in, in Goldfinger in 1964, right up to, to kind of Daniel Craig and asking them, which of these scenes do you think, if any of them, demonstrate the principles of, of, of a healthy sexual experience? Is this sex consensual? Is there anything about this scene that worries you? Can you elaborate on that? And there's one scene in particular that, that really had an effect on me and I think is, is in some ways the kind of linchpin of my involvement in this project. Those uh, who are listening and, and watching might have seen uh, 2015's Spectre, Daniel Craig's um, second to last most recent Bond film. And there's a scene in it where, where he is romancing um, uh, a character, Lucia, played by Monica Bellucci. And he sort of pushes her up against this 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 mirror and it, it's played as though it's this incredibly kind of romantic prelude to what is inevitably going to be a, a sort of a, 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 a sexual uh, um, a sexual evening. And um, Lucia just 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 cries one simple tear down the side of her cheek uh, during the scene. And I remember seeing this in the film in the cinema and I kind of like reclined it or sort of sat back in my chair kind of. I, 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 my, my kind of breath was caught in my throat. I thought, wow, here is very clear evidence of the fact this woman is not comfortable. And yet he continues, Bond continues to, to, to engage in this in, in this sort of um, sexual byplay and this kind of romantic byplay. And uh, the kind of context of that scene is at the beginning of that film, Bond has actually killed this woman's husband. And now he's tracking her down to find kind of connection to, to, to the big bad in that film. But so showing showing the young people scenes like this and imbuing them with a sense of their own digital literacy, you know, how they are able to grow in their attunement to what they're seeing, not just on screen, being able to read that, not for what the film, I think, wants you to think it is, a sexy scene, a romantic scene, but what it actually is, a, a scene of abuse. It, it's, a, it's an abuse blind uh, sexual romantic liaison and, and encouraging those young people to actually become attuned to their partner's signs, signals in, in their own lives. So I'm, I'm really excited about sharing uh, those elements um, of the films and the units with our young people. Superb. Um, Ali, I was just going to ask you, sort of we're coming towards the end now, but I was, I was going to ask you, um, you know, with regards to schools, um, how do you think, apart from obviously using this unit, um, and, and, you know, perhaps including something like this unit in their, in their sort of um, diet, how else should they be tackling toxic masculinity? You know, what, 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 what should they be doing to make the situation better? Because actually I was on Twitter the other day and the teacher replied to a comment. It was a, a, a woman and she said, you know, in our school, um, you know, there is a, a massive issue with, with boys being intimidating the, the women teachers, you know. So, and, and it got a lot of likes. Not not likes as in people liking it, but I mean, it got a lot of um, people agreeing that that was an issue in their, in their setting. And it's something that I've seen as well. I've seen that. So how do you tackle it? Yes, and you're absolutely right that I think most schools are seeing this and the research certainly suggests that. One survey found that 92% of girls saw sexist name calling happening a, a lot or, or frequently. Um, so yeah, I totally agree that this, this module um, is a tool in a wider toolkit of things that schools should be doing. Um, so just a, a couple of other things in that kit from my perspective. Um, one would be the teachers all being kind of confident in their set of sanctions to what might be termed low level um, and often is termed banter 
um, because you know it's really tricky for teachers they're teaching a lesson they hear uh, you know a term being shouted out or or in the corridors and if they're not already trained up or given some space to work out how to react to that it can easily floor you and particularly when oh it's just a joke is the typical defense so I think if all if, if there can be a school approach where all teachers are clear together collectively what are we going to do when we hear this um, and this might actually involve taking quite a bit of time it, it might be that to get in a zero tolerance approach mm. um, takes a bit of effort which detracts from the time that we've got to teach but is worthwhile in creating this culture so there's a clear set of sanctions for, for children talking in this way. And then I would combine that with a wider um, kind of social marketing campaign, which might involve um, content in assemblies, posters, mm -hmm. um, form time. And, and my emphasis with that would be to stigmatize um, sexism and misogyny um, and this, you know, everything we're talking about around around toxic masculinity yeah. i think we need to think about stigma and and here i my head goes to my one of my favorite ad um social marketing campaigns which only the australians would do these massive billboards against drink driving which read if you drink and drive you're a bloody idiot and, <laughs> and you know it, and very effectively yeah. saying there's a problem uh, you know to, to drink and drive is stigmatized it's not cool um, and if we can do uh, that, really maybe, yeah, go on, sorry. Way, we can come up with those pithy phrases that just mm. do a 180 on it. No longer does it become a mark of kudos. It becomes a mark of something that's pathetic and weak. And actually, you're a bit of a mug because you're buying in to um, these bad actors who are trying to manipulate you towards their own ends. To, if they can see Tate and others like him as masters of manipulation and are you going to be one of his fools or can you think for yourself yeah i think i mean i was just going to give another example in there um uh, queen latifah um when she did a track i can't even remember the, the name of the track but in the track she was sort of saying you know if you call a woman the b word if she rejects you then this is sort of lame basically like it's you're, you're a loser and um it had a massive impact on on the black community in the US, um, uh, actually black men. She wasn't necessarily intending, she didn't think that would happen when she released the song, but it did have that impact because she had that influence and that mm -hmm. social influence. So, uh, you know, I was gonna ask you Ian, whether, you know, who are the sort of men, are there any men that you would sort of put as a counterweight to James Bond? I mean, who, because the thing is with boys, they do still, probably need certain focus points um that they can be steered toward you know you need to replace andrew tate with someone so so you know what i'm saying like ide ideas are important and and great you know but they still often need to sort of they'll have role models absolutely so, and you know what we said at the beginning about this this isn't a deficit model this is a kind of a, a, a reconceptualizing model in a way so it's not as if we're saying take all take all of these elements of what you think as a young man constitutes your masculinity throw them out and create something new that, that that's not what we're saying at all someone like marcus rashford for instance i think perfectly encapsulates something of this kind of new man in a way um there'll be very few men who will be intimidated or put off by the kind of vision of masculinity 
which Rashford embodies. He's he's a, a Premier League footballer, but he's also clearly got a sense of empathy, social and civic responsibility. I don't know anything about his romantic life or his sexuality at all. I'm very much aware of the fact that he is um, that he's done a great deal of work in terms of, of encouraging young people to read, in terms of some of the kind of social civic activities that he's been involved in. Someone like that, to my mind, balances a number of the kind of competing elements, sporty, literate, physical, but also clearly interested in the kind of uh, emotional and intellectual expansion. Of, of I, think Harry, I think Harry Kane would be another. Would be yeah, another. absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I think there's um, a number actually of, of current sort of sports stars who, who would sort of fit that bill uh, mm -hmm. quite effectively. So, yeah. I, and actually in the past, that probably wasn't the case, which is why, you know, as we were saying, things probably have, you know, changed a little bit where we have got more people of that ilk. Because, I mean, mm -hmm. if you think of 90s footballers, there weren't many, like Vinnie Jones, you know, as they were Come on, Vinny, talk about your feelings. You know, it wouldn't go it's, also, it's also a particularly unassailable, intimidating vision of masculinity. Me growing up in that era, I think for a while I pretended to enjoy football because that's what my dad liked, right? So I was trying to model myself on this kind of prime example of masculinity. Someone like Vinnie Jones, there's a great schism, a great chasm between my own self-vision of, of a masculinity, a burgeoning masculinity, and someone like Vinnie Jones. It, it's almost a kind of a too intimidating a leap in a sense. And so... No wonder there's this kind of um, anxiety, particularly emotional. Could, could you argue, you know, could, could you argue that sort of every man's different? I guess so. Some people would argue that and say, look, you know, you can be a bit like Vinnie Jones, maybe not not grabbing Paul Gascoigne in the way that, but you can be a bit like Vinnie Jones, or you can be, a, you know, because every personality is going to be different, isn't it? You sure. Know, you know but it goes back to it goes back to the point Ellie made at the beginning about scripting. The scripts get yeah. you so far. True authenticity, true vulnerability, vulnerability, true masculinity, I think, is when you put down the script, take whatever from it that you think realistically you need, but are vulnerable enough to open up, are strong enough in your own resilience and, and your self-resolve. And that's that's you know, terms like strong or strength, they can often be misconstrued. The scripts give us only so much. And the scripts, as Ellie said, are, are limiting. They, 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 they constrict certain visions of masculinity to the Vinnie Jones type. You know, I didn't have, again, growing up in the 90s, I, I didn't have visions of masculinity in the way that a lot of young people now do. Harry Styles, for one, he's blending a kind of almost queer aesthetic with a certain sort of rock star, heterosexual rock star aesthetic. Even still, he's still... I think there's been a sort of bit, a bit of discourse around the idea of, of queer baiting and, and Harry Styles. That there's a kind of an, an appeal to different visions of masculinity or potential masculinities that aren't just the kind of Vinnie Jones archetype. And I, I think that's much more uh, appealing. It's 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 much more realistic to young people because, as you say, Tom, we're not all, and nor do we wish to be. <laughs> Vinnie Jones. We're we're not all yeah. one archetypal man. So yes. Of course, there are as many different visions of masculinity as yeah, there yeah. are men. And I think it's it's also about authenticity, isn't it? Because, you know, the boys will see through sort of someone who's not real and authentic. In, so it's a case of trying to be better um, and trying to do the right things and trying mm -hmm. to learn things, um, mm -hmm. but, also but also 
recognize that it's better to be at least be authentic but be open about it go on Ali. yeah no i'm just totally flowing from that point that i think you know like ian said scripts only get us so far and so do role models um and i think in a way that the, the meta message of the role model is authenticity, that if you see somebody being themselves um, in all of their colours, as it were, that then that should be a, an aspiration. Um, I mean, I just as you were asking this question about which men can boys look up to now, I kind of did an equivalent around women, you know, and for myself, who did I look up to? Well, I can't think of anybody. I, I can't think that I had a role model. And I to a certain degree, I think we should query the need for role models. Um, actually, what we're encouraging with young people is to find who they are. And I'm reminded of that um, phrase, comparison is the thief of joy, that sometimes looking up to people can make us feel deficient in who we are. Um, but then the other thought that came to mind was, you know, the current huge hit of Happy Valley with over 11 million viewers. and the hero of that show being a woman in her 50s who is warts and all herself. Mm. And you know, so when I thinking about female role models, actually it's Catherine Kaywood that comes to mind. And, and societally, we haven't thought about people like that before as role models. And yet there's clearly an appetite for that level of authenticity um, that, that I would love to see in, in, in characters of men and women on, this, on screen. I'd like to say a massive thanks to, to Ian and Ellie for joining us this morning for this chat about the new unit of work that's been developed by Tooled Up Education. You can find out more at tooled-up.com uh, to find out more about the unit, find out more about Tooled Up. The unit's going to be available, as they've just said, they want schools to pilot this with, to work with on it. So if that's you, then make sure you reach out to them. Uh, you can also find them on social media at Tooled Up. Um, and you can find out more about uh, the projects there, give them a follow. Cathy uh, Weston uh, is the director of Tooled Up, so you can find her on Twitter as well, at Parent Engage. Um, and maybe if you have any questions, you can also ask her. We have been Teachers Talk Radio. This will be available as a podcast. You might be listening back to it as a podcast, or you might be watching it with us now. Uh, either way, thank you very much for tuning in. As always, every single one of our listeners we thank you, we commend you, we salute you. And we will be back for more Teachers Talk radio shows. If you're watching this live, we are live in two minutes time with Jane Ritter. Uh, you can listen to her at ttradio.org and click on listen live and she'll be live in about two minutes time. Um, thank you very much to Ellie and Ian and we will speak to you very, very soon. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.